0: To a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations.
1: (laughs) It's a more dangerous environment for the brain than ever before in history. A neurotoxic, perfect storm that assaults the brain and self on all levels, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. No one escapes the weakening effects of this mysterious and invisible epidemic. Rates of anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline have skyrocketed and keep climbing Medication and conventional treatments have failed to stop the mental health crisis, even if they suppress the symptoms. Until the real cause is discovered and treated, things will keep getting worse. Dr. Wright's work is the first guidebook that shows step-by-step step, how to navigate the neurotoxic minefield of modern life so you can function at the highest levels of creative productivity without the exhaustion and burnout. It brings together the newest research in neuroscience, nutrition, and psychology to reveal the complex sources of this neurotoxic stew. And most important, it offers a way back towards our own peak intelligence and radiant brain function, so we can show up and participate in the world at full mental capacity. Valeria Tellez interviews Dr. Brant Courtright, the author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. His previous bestseller is The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle. He is Professor Emeritus with the California Institute of Integral Studies. Dr. Cortright is a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in San Francisco, as well as online. He also has an online coaching and consultation practice focused on brain health, anxiety, and depression. He is the author of two previous books, Psychotherapy and Spirit and Integral Psychology, Yoga, Growth, and Opening the Heart, both by SUNY Press. Meet Dr. Brant at brantcourtright.com. Here is the interview with Dr. Brant Courtright.
0: In your own words, who is Brant Courtright? Um, (laughs)
2: um, I've never been asked that question before. That's a great question. I guess I am a soul, a seeker, and this physical being, this psychological being, who is a professor emeritus and an author and a psychologist. I guess that would be the quick summary.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the soul, yeah, we often hear that, the soul, the spirit. And you also mentioned, you write about the holistic healing and you include the, the spiritual part of us. So my question is, what is the spirit? What is the soul?
2: Well, um, in my understanding, there's actually a difference between spirit and soul. That there are two parts of one essential being. So I think of the soul as our spiritual individuality, the part of us that reincarnates lifetime after lifetime and develops increasing powers, capacities over lifetimes. And I think of spirit as being our Atman or the part of us that is unchanging, that is one with the divine, that is, this is the Atman that is Brahman, Buddha nature, the unevolving, perfect part of us. And so I think of these as two aspects of our divinity, that, that the divine is both personal and impersonal, and we have that within us. We have a personal soul part, and we have an impersonal Atman or Buddha nature part, and that we are really both of these, eternal and evolving.
0: And a question that I often ask is um, this idea of choosing to be here. Is this something that uh, you believe in, that this is a choice to be in a human body?
2: Um, I do actually believe that, that we um, kind of set up a lifetime. The soul sets up a lifetime for us where there are certain things we have to learn, certain things we have to work out, certain things we have to contribute. And finding what that kind of soul trajectory is, is an important part of life. And if we can really get our outer life to align with this soul trajectory, then life is an extraordinary adventure. And the extent to which we are out of alignment with that, seems like there's going to be suffering.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. If we can get this... um... A lot get there, um, and that, I wonder if that is a um, some sort of destination or one-time understanding, or perhaps a practice, a moment-to-moment practice. Would that be more accurate? The last one.
2: I think for most of us, it is. That's right. That it's a, a moment-to-moment and a lifetime practice. Mm-hmm. In fact, a multi-lifetime practice. <laughs> right. Of right. That's right. Of increasing alignment. With this deeper being, yes,
0: Our deeper. so it's fascinating that you are a clinical psychologist and you speak of um, this component of the human being, the soul, the spirit, almost as if you were coming from a place of spirituality and being a spiritual teacher. Why did you choose to become a clinical psychologist, and how do you integrate? spirituality with objectivity and yeah, psychology.
2: Uh-huh. Two great, huge questions. Um, I'll try to be brief. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I really entered into psychology from a path of really Buddhism, mindfulness, yoga, and I entered into it because there were certain parts of psychology, particularly Gestalt therapy and existential approaches, which have a big focus on awareness, and they really seemed like kind of a Western approach to mindfulness to me. And so I thought, well, what a great way to make a living! Um, mm-hmm. I can be, I can really kind of do both. I can be on my path and do healing work as well. And so I. I really think of psychology and spirituality as going together, that they really even kind of need each other. They complete each other. The Western psychology really explores and works with this outer body, heart, mind, organism. But it stops short at our deeper spiritual essence. And the spiritual traditions are pretty much unanimous in saying that our essential identity is not this surface body, heart, mind instrumentation but a soul or spirit. And so the spiritual traditions talk about this deep level of consciousness, and psychology talks about a more surface level of consciousness, but the two really go together, because I think when we make the inner journey to find our soul or spirit, a lot of the obstacles we encounter are psychological.
0: Mm, True.
2: Our defenses, our wounds, our traumas, And so it becomes hard to really make the inner journey without doing some healing. And so I think for certainly most Westerners, and I think pretty much everybody, it's really helpful to have psychological work along with spiritual meditative work because we can't see our own unconscious, right? We can't, that's the definition of the unconscious. Mm, We're unconscious of it. And so it's helpful to have somebody else, like a therapist, who's skilled in that, be able to point out the ways in which our defenses are operating, the ways in which we're unconscious, ways in which we're avoiding things. And as, that, as these early wounds heal, these early avoidances and defenses begin to erode and fall away, we get greater flexibility. We get greater capacity to make the inward journey. Otherwise, the inward journey is constrained by our neurotic defenses and keeps us in a very rigid Small space. So I think that the two are, the two really are uh, mutually beneficial that a meditative practice helps therapy, but doesn't substitute for it. And therapy helps a meditative practice, but doesn't substitute for it.
0: Do these psychological obstacles relate to what we call the ego mind?
2: Yes, exactly. That pretty much everybody is wounded in childhood and in life nobody escapes wounding some people are wounded more and some less but in order to cope with this wounding we erect we erect defenses and those defenses are what keep us alive in our family of origin and our parents because of their defenses because of their wounding going back to their parents i mean it goes back forever there's nobody to blame here this is just forever back into history. they Our parents only allow certain parts of us to emerge. And so we develop this kind of false self or a kind of limited self. And our defensive structures keep the rest of us down. And therapy is about healing that, about allowing those feelings that are kept down into consciousness and integrate them and healing the early wounds and letting those defenses really dissolve so that we can be aware of whatever feelings arise in us. And in that process, new self, kind of old primal vitality comes online and the self becomes more coherent, more cohesive, more integrated, more whole. So as that happens, I think the self is then able to really listen to the soul's direction, the soul's inner prompting. In many traditions, the soul is located behind the heart or behind the heart chakra. Hinduism, Shaivism, in Christianity, Christ pointing to his own open heart. And so there are many different spiritual practices for opening the heart, heart-opening practices, compassion practices. But also I think of psychotherapy as a practice to open the heart as well. It opens kind of what I think of as the outer heart, the surface heart. And the spiritual practices open the deeper inner heart, behind which is the soul. And again, here's another way in which they both work together. They're both working to open this heart to greater, our heart to greater, greater capacity for love for joy, for peace, and to listen to the soul's urgings, which are communicated more by feeling than by thought in many traditions.
0: Yeah, the way you speak about the dynamics of the self and these voices within that um, it's important to listen to or integrate, more importantly, it comes to me as the soul, the ego, and the spirit Those three voices within, Uh Uh but sometimes it really sounds, really feels like there are more voices. (laughs) How do we learn to distinguish them? Those voices.
2: Yeah, I mean discernment um, and discrimination is something that we really only learn through trial and error, through listening and thinking. Okay, that's it. This is this is my soul path. I'm going to do it, and then we fall on our face and we realize, oh wait a second. If I was really listening to myself, I would have heard that that actually was not the way to go. That was my vital ego pushing me forward there. Yeah, there is certainly the ego, um, and the ego, I think, does have many voices. There are many mm, parts to right. us, many sides to us. And in some traditions, there are also different you know, attachments, different influences, different entities who also push on us for good or ill, and having protection against that and having a sense of what is really my deeper sense of things, this deeper light within versus one of these more peripheral voices, that I think is only learned through experience and through trial and error. And, and just when we realize we've not listened to our soul, just checking that and say, oh, wait a second, what, what did I miss there? Every time we move over it, the voice of the soul gets weaker. Every time we try to pay attention to it, bring our focus there, it amplifies the voice a little bit. Right.
0: I have heard that um, love is uh, the greatest reference when listening to those voices. That's how we know. Would you agree with that? And if you do, what is love to you, Brent?
2: In the tradition that I come from, which is Integral Yoga, Um, Sri Aurobindo's Integral Yoga. You're right. Love would be sort of the central vibration of the soul. There's also something called aspiration, that the soul is always aspiring for the divine and for all things divine, for truth, for knowledge, for light, for peace, for love. That this aspiration is different than ego-desire, right the ego desire is noisy unquiet demanding but the soul's aspiration for the divine is fundamentally peaceful fundamentally quiet it can be ardent it can be strong but it's fundamentally peaceful and so in again my tradition integral yoga tuning in to the soul's aspiration this feeling of aspiration is what takes us deeper and deeper into the heart deeper and deeper into the soul If we can connect with love, that also will do it. But for many people, connecting with love right off the bat is just too hard. But aspiration is always there. The soul is always aspiring for a higher life, for higher things, for the divine. And as we tune into that aspiration, that takes us deeper within and that leads to love.
0: Wow, I'll be talking to you here about this forever if I could. (laughs) Well, not today. (laughs) So my last warm-up question is, what is freedom to you? What is to be free?
2: Um, I guess for me, freedom would involve being perfectly aligned or in connection with our soul or spirit or both. That the only thing that's truly free is the divine. And everything else is conditioned. Everything else is conditioned by our desires, by the past, by thought. But the only Truly free action, and the only true, truly free state of being, is spiritual. That liberation is ultimate freedom, in my understanding, anyway. And so, anything short of that is bound to be contaminated, or tainted, or conditioned in some way, and therefore unfree.
0: How do we identify? How do we know? What does it look like? to live that kind of life in a human body, to be free in a human body, what would that look like?
2: Arjuna asked Krishna that question. You know, What does an enlightened person look like? What, does they, what do they eat? What do they talk like? And Krishna said, there is no outer way of looking at this. The outer expression, you can't tell it from there. It's an inner, it's an inner state that we're talking about here. And it can look like many things outwardly, But inwardly, it's this state of identification with, again, Atman, Buddha nature, the soul, both ideally. And it's a state of, it seems like all the traditions are saying that it's a state of extraordinary bliss, extraordinary peace, extraordinary love, extraordinary knowledge and light. It is so far beyond ordinary pleasure that. Regular life pales in comparison. It is ineffable um, and beyond words. And all of the religions say that, that it's beyond words, but then they go on to say, to try to describe it <laughs> in as many words as possible, right. even knowing it's impossible.
0: You wrote the book, Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. I have uh, two questions for you. How did you become a writer and what was the inspiration and intention of writing this book?
2: Um, I became a writer just because I had some things I wanted to say yeah. um, and that weren't out there. And the inspiration behind this book was, you know, it actually started maybe 15 years ago. I noticed that the clients of mine and the students of mine who were vegan were the most fragile, the most emotionally fragile. I thought, well, that's curious. Um, and I was a vegetarian myself at the time. And I was becoming a bit more etheric by being vegetarian. Um, I'd been vegetarian for a couple decades. And I started eating meat and I started feeling more grounded. And I started looking at diet as a contributing factor to emotional difficulties. And so I think of us as being psychophysical beings. Um, actually, as, as you said earlier, it's, it's really body, heart, mind, spirit. It's all four levels. But for simplicity, we can talk about the psychological level, heart, mind, spirit, and we can talk about the physical level. So we have a self, a psychological self, and we have a brain. So all four of these levels, body, heart, mind, spirit, we experience through the self psychologically, and we also experience these through the brain. So in psychology and psychiatry, there's a big split, like depression, for example, is seen by the medical profession and psychiatry as a biological illness. And so people need to take antidepressant drugs for the rest of their lives in order to uh, treat this biological illness. Psychology, on the other hand, psychotherapists see depression as a psychological problem that, due to unskillful behavior and um, difficulties in coping, that's what creates the brain problems that we see. Like, are the brain problems the result of a biological illness, or are the brain problems the result of psychological poor functioning? It's a chicken and egg sort of thing. And I was always in the psychological realm for a long time, but after a while, I began to think, well, maybe there's also more to this brain side than I'd realized. And in researching this and exploring and experimenting with my diet and the diet of my clients, I began to realize that the brain is really under assault right now. There are more neurotoxins in the environment than there ever have been in the history of the world. If you go to Wikipedia, you'll see 200 pages of simply lists of neurotoxins. Over 6,000 neurotoxins in our environment that were never there before. Some of these people know about mercury, lead, cadmium, arsenic, but many of them people don't know about. In addition to this, the brain is under attack from like smog, from environmental pollutants. You know, the very most, something like 90% of the world's population lives in polluted areas. And these very small pollutants, 2.5 microns and below, are so small, they enter the lungs into the bloodstream, and they cross the blood-brain barrier into the brain, where they act like little wrecking balls to the neurons there, the delicate neurons. And that creates inflammation in the brain. And inflammation is one of the drivers of depression, of anxiety, and of cognitive decline. Pesticides. The most commonly used pesticide in the world is glyphosate, Roundup. 300 million pounds are used in the United States every year. A few years ago, UCSF did a study where they found that 93% of Americans have measurable levels of glyphosate in their system. By now, it's probably even higher. And glyphosate is not only an antibiotic that wipes out your microbiome, which has terrible consequences, we know, but it also opens up the tight junctions of the intestines. And the tight junctions are what keeps out the bad stuff and lets in the good stuff. So when those tight junctions open up, it lets in toxins into the body, which creates inflammation. It also opens up the tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier. And so the, the brain also begins to get toxins into it, which also creates inflammation. So we get leaky gut, we get leaky brain. I could go on and on and on. Anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline are skyrocketing. And it's worse with kids. It's actually the worst. I mean, childhood rates of depression are five to eight times what they were in the 1960s. And childhood rates of anxiety are eight times what they were in the 1960s. And that's not with better testing. That's with the exact same standardized tests that were used back then. Alzheimer's is five times what it was in the 1960s. It turns out there are some common neural mechanisms behind anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. There are very different psychological processes, and so what this book does is tries to put together both the neural brain side as well as the psychological side and looking at that and putting them both together. Because I think most people can benefit from both. But what surprised me most was how many people began to feel better simply as their brain began to heal. That most people have what I think of as a weakened brain. I call this weakened brain syndrome in the book. And it's death by a thousand cuts. You know, we don't notice one or two, or even twenty or thirty. But after a hundred or two hundred, we begin to falter. And most commonly we falter into anxiety or depression or cognitive decline or all three. So learning how to actually heal the brain as opposed to treat the symptoms through psychiatric medication is what led me to write
0: the book. You mentioned that you were a vegetarian before Uh and now you're not anymore. So when you changed, you felt better. My first question about that is this idea that I mentioned earlier about when we understand what life is about, that everything's connected and love arises, which means we, from that, we try not to hurt animals, for example. We won't hurt ourselves, other people, and we extend that to the animals. Yeah, how do you feel about that? Because from you, I get this feeling that you are there at that deepest understanding what life is about. So, yeah, how do you uh, integrate that?
2: That's right, that we want to do as little harming as possible. Yeah. I guess I, I try to eat sustainably raised meat, wild-caught fish, and I think there is no not doing violence. There's no way to not do violence. And if we live, there are insects that are dying, There are uh, plants that get cut. People have recorded, scientists have recorded little screams when plants are cut and harvested. So I think there is no way to not injure anything. Um, That that simply isn't possible. And I think in terms of brain health, I actually was hurting myself by making myself more etheric and um, more kind of psychologically vulnerable and more reactive in that place. And as a more reactive person, I was also hurting other people just emotionally because I wasn't as centered in myself. And so I think in the long run, I actually feel like I'm living a more centered, more peaceful life, even though I'm eating meat.
0: You mentioned that this is very important to have in your book a diet that is a healing diet. And that's another question I have about vegetarianism and veganism that has been said is the the most uh, anti-inflammatory kind of of way of eating. Is that accurate?
2: Um, I think it depends on how you do it. Um, For example, many vegans will eat a lot of vegetable oils. Vegetable oils are highly inflammatory. They have a high amount of linoleic acid Um, this omega-6 fatty acid, which is very inflammatory. Ideally, we want a ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 of one to one, or maybe one to two. So omega-3s we get mostly from fish, and omega-6 we get from a lot of things in the environment. We also, in like grass-fed beef, has an almost ideal ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, like a one to one point. For something like that. But if we eat commercial meat, then that's 1 to 1 to 5 ratio, which begins to become inflammatory. Also, in a vegan diet, if people aren't careful, they can eat a lot of fried foods. And fried foods are highly inflammatory. The modern diet has a ratio of about 1 to 20, as opposed to 1 to 1 or 1 to 2. And this 1 to 20 ratio, or 1 to 30 ratio, is this inflammatory lifestyle. You know, we know that inflammation is behind most major diseases, chronic diseases, cancer, heart disease, um, it's involved in diabetes, it's involved in Alzheimer's. Um, it's behind most things that are bad, um, that are chronic. So to, in the, the healthy brain diet, as I spell it out in the book, I list four basic pillars that the diet is neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. And it goes into real detail with each, each one of those four about how they contribute to brain health and how they heal the brain.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful work, though, Rich. I was like, well, I have to go back and read some more, especially about supplements. I do take omega-3 supplements. Good. Yeah, okay. and I was just wondering if, um, I, if I was doing the right thing, I'm doing the right thing, and that helped me.
2: You definitely are. If if there is one supplement above all that's important to take, it's omega-3s. And most people can use three or four grams a day. And if you have low inflammation, you should probably do a ratio of one to one, EPA to DHA. Omega-3s have ALA, which isn't very important, EPA, which is anti-inflammatory, and DHA, which is the fundamental building block of the brain. We want to have both. EPA and DHA. But if you have high levels of inflammation, then you should probably do a two-to-one ratio of EPA to DHA in the omega-3s that you take daily. But we definitely want omega-3s and we definitely want a good amount of DHA because 60% of the brain is fat. And of that, a third to a half of it is DHA it is the fundamental building block for the brain, and we need lots of it every day because the brain is always rebuilding itself. It's always remodeling itself. It's always in movement. It's always growing. This neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, making new connections and new brain cells, that movement, that aliveness, gives us this sense of vitality. And when the brain slows down, becomes sluggish, that's when we see anxiety, Depression and cognitive decline. And that's why maintaining a high neurogenic rate is very important. And the book goes into about 30 different neurogenic compounds that are helpful for that.
0: I wanted to ask a question about the difference between neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. Uh, a lot. I didn't know the difference.
2: Yeah. So neurogenesis is the creation of new brain cells the genesis of new neurons. And it used to be thought that we stopped growing new brain cells in our early 20s. And after that, it was just one slow die-off. But then they discovered about 20 years ago that actually we create new brain cells throughout the entire lifespan. And this is known as neurogenesis. Synaptogenesis, or neuroplasticity, that we've known about for several decades. And that is where the brain makes new connections among the neurons, the existing neurons. So both of these together, synaptogenesis and neurogenesis, are important to maintain this high neurogenic rate, which is what we need in order to feel clear, alert, sharp, good memory, and with robust emotional resilience.
0: That is so helpful, though, for all of us. And I'm wondering if that can also help women. With the menopause or the period every month, like myself, I feel that it affects the brain. I'm not able Uh to think clearly and I'm like, what's Uh happening? I exercise, I do everything right. But during that week, it's just, yeah, it's challenging.
2: Yeah, hormones have a big impact on cognitive function, huge impact. And so if we can have our cognitive functioning be at the highest rate possible, that impact will be minimal. We will be more protected against those kind of hormonal imbalances um, or hormonal shifts. I wouldn't call menopause or the period an imbalance, but it's a shift anyway. We'll be able to maintain a more steady cognitive state.
0: So we're almost at the end, but before that, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book?
2: Well, You know, there are physical neurotoxins. There are also emotional neurotoxins, right? Stress, stress, for example. Loneliness. Angry relationships. These actually cause a stress response which shrinks the hippocampus, which actually can even kill brain cells. And it slows our neurogenic rate way down. And so part of brain health is also having good relationships, and good emotional states as well. When you feel good, contented, and excited to be alive, you think clearly and lucidly. Your immune system hums along nicely. You easily shrug off small upsets and bounce back fairly quickly from big ones. Emotional health doesn't mean always feeling good. Rather, it's feeling whatever life hands us with a certain optimism and resilience. Emotional well-being allows your brain to operate at peak performance feeling good activates your higher brain centers so you can utilize all the creativity and higher executive functioning of the prefrontal cortex. And I'll just stop with that.
0: How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? I guess I think of
2: success as the capacity to really become ourselves, to really actualize the potential in our brains and our self, that we start off with this kind of we are just a bunch of potential and if we can really follow our soul's path if we can really follow our authentic self then the brain's capacities the self's abilities its creativity can more and more come out and as we do that we become ourselves we actualize ourselves we we tune into and bring forth these hidden gifts for the world and for our own development. And so I guess I think of success as we are successful to the extent that we have really become and realized our deepest capacities and potentials.
0: Beautiful answer. Yeah, thank you. What is another word for healing? Another
2: word for healing. So the word healing comes from the same root as health, holy, and whole. And... So all of those words coming out of this word Greek word holos, meaning whole forming. So if we look at health as the absence of wholeness, then another word for healing would be holing.
0: <laughs> <I guess. laughs> <All right. laughs> That's a funny one. <laughs> Right. (laughs) This is great. Two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way?
2: Well, I would want to put my affairs more in order and I would gather around me my kids and family and close friends. Other than that, I think I'm doing what I should be doing.
0: And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of now?
2: Three things I know for life, about life for sure. Yeah. Well, I know that life does move towards increasing wholeness. I I just, my whole life has been a kind of understanding of that, that there is an increasing sense of greater integration, greater wholeness, greater development, greater evolution that is going on, that we are all participating in. The evolution isn't necessarily in a straight line, but it's in a spiral anyway. It, it's, I, I, I really think that this is happening. And I trust absolutely in that there is this divine center in each of us. And I experience it most clearly in my heart, but I feel that to be my most essential being. And the one source of guidance I really trust, like when something really comes from there, I feel like I really know that that is something I can truly believe. And my difficulty is discerning that from my surface ego. But when I can discern it, it's always the right answer.
0: Thank you so much again for your work, your purpose in this reality, your beautiful presence, peaceful presence, and your wisdom. Thank you, Brent.
2: It was a delight to be with you. Thank you.
0: Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects?
2: Well, my book is on Amazon. It's Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. And my website is brandcortright.com.
0: Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Good. Bye for now. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Brant Courtright and his works, please visit brantcortright.com.
0: To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.